0: I do want to start with really thinking about the power of inspiration. As I mentioned to you last night, when I was here at Easter, having a moment's conversation with uh, Helen, it came so strongly that at this peace of mind retreat, I would speak with you about forgiveness. Because one of the most powerful and obstinate obstacles to peace of mind is a feeling of resentment, or bitterness, or inadequacy, or helplessness. Those are all um, such Powerful obstacles and can cause us anguish or can even cause us despair. So it seemed to me that if we were going to think together again this year about peace of mind, which is what we are doing. Thank you. But if- going to speak together about peace of mind, it's all right. Thank you. Um, we would have to think about forgiveness. But the wonderful thing is that over these last uh, days and weeks, I moved from thinking about forgiveness to thinking we must first think about suffering and then realizing that to think about suffering we must first think about healing and then thinking that if we were to think about healing we must first think about who is healing and who is being healed. In other words, that we must think about who and what is the self. Who is here today with all of us? Who has been you for all the moments of your unique and precious existence? It's a formidable thought, isn't it? It's a formidable thought. And really, to come into thinking together about it fruitfully, I think we have to move into a spiritual logic. And, in fact, to think about all of those themes which we will come to more or less, more or less, in that order. We have to engage with a spiritual logic. And this is the logic also that our world desperately needs at this time. We need a spiritual logic where, for example, harming makes no sense. And healing becomes the inevitable outcome of our thinking. We need this. We need this personally. I, I don't know all of you personally yet, but I would be astonished if there's anyone sitting in this room now or anyone listening at a later time who doesn't feel in the need of healing. I know that I do. A few days before I came here, A friend phoned, who's the mother of one of my godchildren. And he's an extraordinarily lovely little boy, as all little boys are extraordinarily lovely. And uh, he's six. And he turned six recently, and he had a party, and he invited all the little boys in his class, and he particularly invited the three who were his special friends. And the reason that his mother was speaking to me is that one of the three had just had a party and had not invited him. And he experienced, for the first time, the devastation of exclusion. And I would say that one of the huge healings of this time, and one of the healings for which the religions and for anyone on a seeking path must take responsibility is the healing of inclusion. That this, in a sense, is our starting point. Who are we leaving out? Who are we including? And when it comes to our own selves, what aspects of ourselves are we leaving out? And what are we including? A spiritual logic takes us to a place where it makes absolute sense that we belong inevitably and unquestionably and unconditionally to the infinite universe, not just to this physical universe, but I suspect to an infinite universe also. We belong. But many of our most devastating experiences of suffering are not just disappointment that things didn't go as we wished they would or that someone we adore or love is suffering, this is a a terrible suffering, but also that we or someone we know or care about or love which eventually could be our whole human family, is being in some way excluded or dehumanised or robbed of their dignity. It was a very, very powerful thing for me to re-experience, through my friend's pain on behalf of her little boy, what that means. And I remembered it so vividly, and I remembered it, you know, what a tiger I I felt when my own children were insulted or hurt in any way. And in this instance, after we talked about it for some time, for some long time while she expressed her, her feeling and her anger with the mother and so on and so on, and eventually we came to a point where I suggested that in terms of healing the friendship between the children, that she really points out to her son that parents sometimes make choices that we would not make so that there is least hurt between the children. And that may in fact be very much the case. For reasons that we can't know, it may be that those parents don't particularly like the adorable parents of this lovely little boy. As I said to her, Perhaps to those parents, you're too much of a hippie or you're not a hippie enough or you're too successful or you're not successful enough. I mean, the variations are endless on why somebody can take a dislike to us and the variations are endless as to why someone can take a liking to us. And in a sense, it's worthless to go there. But where we can go is to think, how can we best heal this situation? How can we bring back? A feeling of inclusion and really in a sense this is what our this is what our work is together over this time this is what it is our incredible privilege to think about. At the very end of um, at the very end of Seeking the Sacred I quote a most marvelous perhaps the most marvelous existential question that could be raised, and it was raised by Francis of Assisi. And I've spoken it with some of you before, but really we could ask it every day while we're still in the body until we leave. And apparently he asked it when he was quite a young person. My God and all. Now this is already very powerful. My God and all. Not my God and the rest of it. It's my God who is all. The all of the all. Perhaps that's the only thing that we could possibly come towards in thinking about God. The all of the all. Leaving nothing out. Leaving nothing out. My God and all, what are you and who am I? So, you don't have two selves. You have a huge variety of ways in which you express the self. You don't have a temporal self and an eternal self. Although that's often how we talk about it. That's often how I talk about it. You have a self that's located in a body that even if you have the privilege, the marvelous privilege to really live out your time, even to become tired of the restrictions of the body, you know, which very old age brings, a weariness with the restrictions of the body. Even if you have that incredible privilege to live that long, it's actually a very short time. During that time, you get to know your personality self. You get to know, and so do other people, by the way. They get to know it really quite well. You get to know your temperament, Some of us have a very easygoing temperament. Some of us are much more fiery. I'm rather at the fiery end myself, so great sympathy to all of those of you who are at the fiery end. (laughs) On the other hand, great sympathy to all of those of you who are not at the fiery end, because you might have to fire yourselves up. (laughs) (laughs) So wherever we are, our temperament brings us gifts, and it brings us difficulties and challenges wherever we are. This is the nature of the human nature. Isn't it? We know that very well. Sometimes we're rather obsessed with our shortcomings rather than our long goings. Um, And there is much in our social and cultural, and psychological conditioning which invites us to dwell, sometimes ceaselessly, on the shortcomings or our lacks of talent or the habits which limit us. I'm not quite sure that we really have a life long enough for that, I suspect that we need at this time to be more fruitful, to dwell with a greater sense of abundance, to bring forth our fruits and squander them. Because the great thing about the fruits of the spirit and the soul and and the psyche are that the more we squander, the more we have to squander. So, we could think very much also about our strengths. I loved it yesterday when Jane, this Jane D, said to us, it's a habit to come on retreat. (laughs) Because so often we think of our habits as constraining us and not freeing us, but some of our habits tune us in to rhythms that actually free us. Free the choosing self to choose wisely. And the choosing self is, in a sense, at the heart of the matter. If you think of your life as a big circus tent, If you think of your life as taking place from a circus tent. So here we are in the octagon and it gives us a lovely picture of a a circus tent. Except a circus tent is more exposed to the elements, isn't it? Because it's canvas. So the wind and the rain and the snow and the ice and and the droughts are just there. Very close to the skin very close to the being. Inside the tent is the ringmaster or the ringmistress, the choosing self. This is not the self, it's the choosing self. And it's a very liberating thing to be in touch with the choosing self. We free ourselves to the extent to which we are conscious of our choices. That's what freedom is. That's what liberty is. And with that comes responsibility. Victor Frankl, whom I'll speak to you about once or twice over the course of this um, workshop time, retreat time together, had a very droll thing to say about the United States and its famous Statue of Liberty, which is on the East Coast. He said, if only there were a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. (laughs) Um, Well, We all need our East Coast Statue of Liberty, our affirmation of freedom, and we need to match it with our affirmation of responsibility because it's when we know we can take responsibility for our choices and for their consequences that we come into a stable relationship with the self. So all the things that we associate with the self are expressions of it. But we often take a rather reductive view. So for example, let's suppose Patsy, who's sitting in front here, let's suppose Patsy likes everything that I do, likes everything about me, thinks I'm quite the nicest person she's met the whole week and showers me with praise and appreciation and gentleness and kindness and affection. Well, naturally, I'll think rather well of Patsy. (laughs) I couldn't help it, could I? I would be so touched because we're all hungry for that. We want that, we need that. That's part of our social fabric. But then suppose that it came to my notice that Patsy had actually been sending a note round saying <laughs> never, ever go to manna with Stephanie's
1: teaching.
0: <laughs> uh. It's very confusing the way she teaches. I think she should be much more precise, much more dogmatic, <laughs> and, um, and set some rules. <laughs> and I don't approve of the way she's teaching. Now, I might have a slightly different feeling about Patsy when I hear that, particularly if she hasn't discussed it with me. I might feel betrayed, I might feel hurt, I might feel misunderstood, and then I might imagine that I see a quite different Patsy. Now, what I'm describing goes on all the time in our relationships, and never more so than in the relationships that start in a great flurry of love (laughs) and idealization. And you know, in the almost perfect marriage, I'm sure I do say, I'm pretty confident that I do say, you know, the perfect person that we see when we fall in love is still there. But we get very distracted. (laughs) And what distracts us are what we are attributing to the person and most of all, we are distracted by our complaints. We find our complaints very distracting, don't we? So we hardly ever see the person in their wholeness. We hardly ever allow the person their wholeness and conversely, we are often very harsh in our judgments of ourselves. We're either seeing all shadow or all light. We're very rarely seeing the whole, the yin, the yang, the action, the reflection, the shadow, the light, the being and the becoming. So when I invite you today to inhabit a spiritual logic in how you think about who you are and what you are, it's not only that I'm going to invite you to reflect in a moment on your eternal self, as well as this familiar temporal self, temporary self, passing self, just seeing you for a while on this earth, hello, self. I'm also inviting you, and I'm inviting you with a lot of feeling to really Make yourself at home with your whole self. Because I can really say to you, out of my more than 35 years working on these kinds of things, that we will soften our complaints and we will soften our dissatisfactions with ourselves and others when we see them as part of the whole picture and not the whole picture. Let's assume that the whole picture is very rarely available to us, but that we are going to do our very best to open our eyes to it, to our whole self, to our strengths in the face of our suffering, to our compassion in the face of our weakness, so that we don't have to bring forth from ourselves the tired old rebuker with which we may be all too familiar. In Seeking the Sacred Donna, our lovely Donna who's here with us, tells the most marvellous, wicked story about Mrs. Fricker and her complaints. And we all have a Mrs. Fricker inside ourselves, you know, well-versed in complaints and criticism. This is part of ourselves, but it need not dominate. So what I'm inviting you to reflect upon is that from the simplest perspective possible, you are a complex self. You have many ways of expressing yourself and your freedom arises when you feel most able to choose. Not just how you will act, not just the judgments you will make, but also how you will be in a particular situation and how others can receive you. I hope that's really, really clear. It's about being, it's about atmosphere. You know, what we say, how we act, What we talk about, the gestures we make with our hands or our hugs or our our looking with the eyes, this is all about generating atmosphere. Is this an atmosphere of inclusion? Or is it an atmosphere of enmity and competitiveness and bitterness? in which no one can flourish. In Australia, at this present time, we have a very, very adversarial public culture. I think we have a more adversarial public culture than at any time I can remember. Mm -hmm. And I've been living in Australia since 1983. And this is very dangerous because it normalizes contempt, it normalizes um, disrespect, and it takes us far away from finding the best solutions to some of our most urgent human problems. It's a very unintelligent way of being. It's a very, very unintelligent way of being. The far more intelligent way of being together with one another as many selves is to think and act cooperatively which doesn't mean that we won't have differences but we will learn to resolve our differences cooperatively. We will learn to concede we will learn to conciliate. All of those con words which mean with, with. With one another, we will learn from one another. With one another, we will take ourselves forward. And truly, that is one of the great, great teachings of this marvelous time in which we are alive. That Each of us is a singular, extraordinarily precious, never to be repeated, human life. There will never, ever, ever be another exact you, even if you're a twin, even if you're an identical twin, even if you're an identical triplet or Quintuplet, at the same time we are entering a time in which we cannot afford to misunderstand or discount or ignore our utter dependence upon one another. The facts of our interdependence. One of our greatest sufferings is the suffering of aloneness. I've spoken about the suffering of exclusion. It's closely related to the feeling of aloneness. This is one of the greatest sufferings again of our time, aloneness. And to some extent it comes because we live less conformist lives than we once did. And we've gained some freedom in that and we've lost some uh, intrinsic companionability. You know, we might have felt very restricted by our village, but we knew we lived in that village. Now, we often don't live in a village, whether we live in a city or a village, it, it, beside the point, Vi- a village is a state of mind. Often we don't have a village, and we can feel very, very alone, and yet, The facts of our interdependence, not only as a human species, but all forms of life, has never been more vivid to us. And it's never been more urgent that we understand it. So that's a very, very exciting thing to consider in your own way also when you're thinking about who am I? I am part of something wondrous. I have within me the strengths, the abilities, the talents, the drives to connect with others. I have the ability to communicate and live cooperatively. And you do. And you do. I guess one of the ways in which I have been able to continue to do this work over many years and sometimes I've not only felt deeply unworthy of it, I've also felt it was too much, too much. Much better just to go back to a, a little room and not re- be reading people's faces as I speak. And I think that what really keeps me going is a kind of fierce conviction that there is goodness in people and that we can encourage one another to wake it up and that we can't afford not to play our part in the healing that comes with the waking up. So however imperfectly we do it, that's what I'm trying to say to you, isn't the point. It's really not the point. If we can speak up for it at all, and we can, then, I think we can.